This year's Thanksgiving letter is entitled Reverse Refugee, Thanksgiving 2020. A rabble of dirty-faced kids cheered and squealed with delight, chasing us through the cloud of dust kicked up in the wake of the bus, their excited hollers a mix of Arabic and Kurdish dialects. As we approached a gap in the cyclone fencing, security personnel wheeled the gates closed behind us, and we parked in a courtyard surrounded by squat, corrugated metal container units. A large banner emblazoned with a blue and white logo hung limply in the scorching heat, with the words, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, written in faded letters. A door swung open on the side of the unit, and we were beckoned inside for an introduction. Despite having lived in Iraqi Kurdistan for several years, I had not yet visited one of the many refugee camps and service around the city. Many of my acquaintances in the expat community worked with NGOs, and for several consecutive years I had spearheaded an annual volunteer project with my students, working on the periphery of the humanitarian sector here. But this was my first experience of actually being present inside the limits of a refugee camp, touring the facilities, speaking with internally displaced families, and coordinating a delivery of donations with my senior high students. The contrasts were stark. I was in charge of, a, of 12 well-heeled students from a private international school for the trip that day. The camp had over 1,000 refugee students who attended one of two schools located within the grounds, run and operated entirely by volunteer teachers. According to the camp director who gave us an informational briefing prior to our visit, an overwhelming 95% of the students failed the national curriculum exams. My students were virtually guaranteed a 95% pass rate, with university education a clear and solid option on the horizon. I shied away in the back corner of the shipping container turned office, the rattle of depressing statistics shaking me with the same force as the clunky air conditioner struggling against the sweltering heat. The camp director finished his brief, glanced to the back of the room to make eye contact with me, and asked if we'd like to visit one of the shelters. It was an entirely jarring experience to duck under the tent flap to the dim, tarpaulin-filtered light of a refugee shelter in the camp. Sadia and her three daughters welcomed us, motioning for us to sit on the low bank of cushions lining the sides of the room. The space was long and narrow, with steel braces arching overhead. It felt like sitting in a gardener's polytunnel greenhouse, the fetid warmth encouraging the sprouting of woven floral motifs across the faded patchwork of oriental rugs covering the concrete slab. Without question, tea was served to everyone along the row, the tiny fluted glasses jostling for space on a dented aluminum platter. Sadia settled cross-legged on the floor near the entrance, the worn fabric of her house dress limp and formless around her figure. She shared her story through a translator, the glottal phonemes of her Arabic dialect puncturing her speech 
like the report of artillery echoing, echoing across the years of pain since her displacement. Isis had destroyed her entire village six years ago, she blankly informed us. She and her husband, with three grown daughters and four adult sons, had shared this space in the camp ever since. When asked by one of my students if she'd like to return home, her steel-hardened expression communicated more than enough, even before the translation came. What's there to go back to? Everything was destroyed. Her face then filled with a mixture of resignation and fear. I've been here so long, I can't imagine leaving. And even though I don't want to stay, I don't feel safe anywhere else. After graciously thanking her for sharing her home with us, we filed out back towards the distribution center where our bus was parked. A collection of black bags filled with assorted donations was piled high in the back seat, visible through the dusty rear windows. The security guards inched the gates open, allowing us to pass, while a ragtag crowd of children quickly gathered outside. The chain link rattled and the children shouted with excitement as we carted black bags of clothing into the building for distribution by the staff later. A few toys had fallen from one of the bags and lay in the open doorwell of the bus. As we climbed aboard the bus and rolled out the gates, I tossed the remaining few items into the indistinguishable jumble of hands pounding on the side panel. As we picked up speed and the rabble stretched thin, I caught sight of one child at the tail end of the pack holding aloft a plastic T-Rex figurine and roaring gleefully in the wake of our tire tracks. I put on my teacher face and turned to face the rows of clean, healthy, opportunity-rich teenagers behind me. The sun glinted off one student's designer watch. Another perched her immaculate sneakers on the wheel well, politely removing her wireless earphones while I conducted the debrief. The world inside the bus felt so inconsistent with the world outside, the stark contrast haunting me like a ghost storyteller with a flashlight held under the chin. I watched out the rear window as the dust cloud kicked up by our departure shrouded the view, the camp receding into the distance. I ran through my list of prepared questions designed to help make sense of the experience we just shared. All right, folks, facts, feelings, findings, futures. I rattled off the headings for an established debriefing routine. Let's start with the facts. What information did we learn? There's only one hospital on the site, offered one student. There are thousands of residents and they come from all different backgrounds in Iraq and Syria stated another. I steadily worked through the debrief, asking students to share their feelings in response to the experience, their findings in light of new information, and how their future vision might have changed as a result. By the end, a sober silence hung in the air, broken only by the whistling of the hot wind rushing through a cracked window. Several students hid their faces from me, not for fear of being called upon to speak, but to hide the tears that now gathered in the corners of their eyes. I had planned for this to be a powerful learning experience for the students. However, I had failed to realize just how much it would impact me. 
It seemed everyone on board that bus was moved in some way by the newfound truth that the world is a difficult place to live in, and that we have a responsibility towards justice. Seeking an uptick to the mood on board, I rounded off the debrief with specific commendations to individual students for their efforts in gathering, sorting, and distributing donations, and revealing to everyone how proud I was of the work they'd done. My teacher face melted as I turned to face forward, collapsing into my seat. My colleague and co-chaperone for the field trip put an affirming hand on my shoulder. Good job, he whispered. I buried my head in my hands and wept. The empathy I felt that day filled a container somewhere in my soul, stored neatly in a jar for reference until half a year later, the bottom fell out and I ended up standing in a messy, emotional puddle. At the onset of the global coronavirus pandemic, I found myself locked down on the Greek island of Samos, a destination that I had intended as a week-long spring break getaway, when borders shut and flights were grounded overnight. As I scrolled the daily news headlines from my villa bunker overlooking the Aegean Sea, I suddenly recognized the same mix of resignation and fear that I had seen on Sadia's face in the Iraqi refugee camp. My overnight status from tourist to indefinite leave to remain during pandemic was far from the hardship of ISIS attacks or living under canvas, but lockdown is still restricting, isolation is still lonely, and personal difficulty always looms larger and nearer than that from afar. Exasperated by the rapid deceleration of my life's activities, I threw my phone in my pocket and wandered out for a walk. An overgrown path led down a short flight of stairs through a gap in the lime-washed retaining wall surrounding the property. The path turned to follow the top of the cliffs, cutting through the thorny scrub of lavender, fragrant sage, and wild thyme. Ducking under branches and stepping over brambles, I emerged at a point on a broad, rocky ledge overlooking the sea. A small cape curved inland on my left. Pockmarked boulders tumbled into the sea on my right. The wind swept my hair back, a tang of salt heavy in the air. I sat down on the ledge, alone and watched for signs of life in the vast circumference of sea and sky surrounding me. It was quiet, desolate, barren. Winter still maintained her tentative grip on the island, the air still chilled with the damp of wind and rain. I picked up a stone, tossed it into the sea. The splash it made was the only indication that I had an agency of self in the situation. I had made that splash occur through my action. It felt satisfying to exercise sudden control of such a minuscule event. I picked up another stone, throwing it further. Splash! Another. Higher. Further. Harder. I started volleying stones into the sea, hurling with all my might, as if throwing enough stones might build a bridge home. 
A sudden, unknown voice welled up inside me, and I yelled into the void a long, wordless grunt of aggravation. I collapsed onto the ledge, breathless and spent. I was stuck here, indefinitely, alone, isolated, cut off. I was a castaway, tantalizingly in sight of land on the horizon that shares a border with my adopted Kurdish home. I momentarily imagined myself attempting to swim the one-mile stretch of sea between me and Turkey, my carry-on bag ludicrously hoisted overhead as I frantically dodge waves, seaweed, and sharks. A kind of reverse refugee. I had written in my journal the night before, I'm so, so alone and sad right now. I can't pity myself. It's, it's beautiful here, but it's really hard to be all by myself like this. I have nobody to prop me up. I'll go crazy by the end of this. And then I thought about 52 Hertz. In 1989, as the Cold War was reaching a boiling point of dissolution, researchers on the Pacific Northwest coast of the U.S. picked up a sonic frequency from the blue depths that was unlike anything else they could identify. Most of the hydrophones used by the researchers were geared towards spying on enemy submarine activity. However, other natural phenomena were collected as well. Seismic shifts on the ocean floor, underwater volcanic activity, whale calls. But one frequency stood out. At 52 hertz, it followed the pattern of a whale call, but was a full octave above a whale's normal range. And curiously, the calls were never answered. Blue whales, whose bellowing frequencies are common and recognizable in the northern Pacific, send out their calls on the ocean currents, broadcasting their message across hundreds of miles. In the deep, dark blue of the Pacific, these calls are one of the only ways whales can find each other. It is surmised that the calls constitute a kind of language all their own, communicating sources of food, possible dangers, directional orientation, or desire for a mate. But 52 Hertz, as the whale was soon dubbed, was alone in the wild. Researchers were puzzled by the isolation and the odd frequency of his call, and public spe speculation soon took hold. Perhaps he was lost, stranded and forgotten by his pod? Could he be injured or suffer some deformity which altered the register of his call? Did other whales simply find his call too bizarre, different, or even beyond their range to understand? Why did no other whales ever answer the forlorn bass note rumblings bellowed out across the void? Answers were none, but 52 hertz was quickly dubbed the loneliest whale in the world. Watching the waves crash against the cliffs beneath me, I wondered if whales even lived in the Aegean Sea. I wondered if 
Like Jonah of prophetic fame, one might swallow me whole and spit me out on the road to Nineveh, a mere stone's throw from my home in Kurdistan. I felt like the whale, alone and adrift. But perhaps I was a Jonah, a castaway with a message to bring. I pulled out my phone and opened the camera, perching it on a rock and checking the screen to see that I was in the frame. I didn't know who I was talking to, but I knew who I was talking for. Me. Like a message in a bottle cast upon the waves, I didn't know if anyone would ever find it, but for my own sanity, I needed to maintain hope that someone might hear me. Hi. I'm Joel, and since early March, I have been locked out of my home due to the global pandemic. The months stretched out like a vast, unpopulated stretch of sandy beach with no recourse for shade. The enforced deceleration of life's activities wasn't all negative, however. The downtime served as an incubator for thought and self-reflection. By the time June rolled around, I'd been on Samos for over three months, and the thoughts laid in those video messages were starting to hatch. My birthday falls in mid-June, and this year I turned 40. As a special treat to myself in the midst of my lonely paradise island, I took the bus to the capital town on the island an hour away. I decided to explore the streets of the big city and see what life was like on the other side of the island. So, I trundled off to Vathi. At first, it seemed like nothing special. It was another Mediterranean island town, much like the one I was living in on the western side of the island. Characteristic Greek architecture with whitewashed stone walls and terracotta roof tiles. But, whereas Karlovasi spread out along the alluvial plain like a smear of butter on toast, Vafi piled up in the tight, narrow confines of the harbor, the steeper slopes of the valley damming the progress of civilization and forming a dense reservoir of cafes, alleyways, narrow tenement houses, and seafront restaurants. I sat by the promenade and sipped a coffee, savoring the heady luxury of being free to independently move about the island. The barista must have found my ear-to-ear -ear smile somewhat disarming as I reveled in the novel pleasure of human interaction. I took my coffee on a discovery walk around the town center, which, much like Karlovasi, closed in mid-afternoon for siesta from the heat. I didn't mind, however. I wandered the empty streets like a kid at a carnival, every alleyway and empty plaza an architectural delight. It was a thrill to be someplace new for the first time in months. The tangled lanes spiraled slowly uphill, and the few people I did see milling about in the afternoon heat were decidedly not Greek. A group of black men strolled downhill towards the waterfront, conversing loudly in the distinct thick rounded vowels of West African French. A mother soothed her crying infant while sheltered in the shade of a plane tree, her figure swaddled in modesty under the distinctive billows of a burqa. 
Two teenage boys, sporting designer jeans and voluminous haircuts, joked with one another, the fluid tones of Farsi spilling like cool stream of water, echoing up the lane long after they'd passed by. I emerged onto a dusty gravel lot, high above the heart of the city. Below me, the distinctive cupolas of the church bell towers punctuated the skyline, the bay shimmering in the summer sunlight like a bowl of diamonds. The town petered out on the ridge, extending on both sides, but behind me, on the rising slope of the mountain, a tangle of tents sprouted like autumn mushrooms. Swathes of canvas and tarpaulin formed a labyrinth of makeshift shelters surrounded by a ten-foot-tall perimeter fence topped with cyclone wire. A gap in the fencing was flanked by two container buildings perched on concrete slabs. I recognized the blue and white placard hung by the entrance to one of the containers. United Nations High Commission for Refugees. I was surprised to see a refugee camp here on my island. However, given the proximity to Turkey, a common route of passage for so many people into the EU, it shouldn't have come as a surprise. I was curious to see inside the refugee camp behind me, but I knew it was pure voyeurism to just waltz up and ask permission to enter. Glancing at my watch, I resumed my walk down to the town center and the bus station from which I could trundle back home to my villa on the far side of the island. My eye caught a posted notice on the door of a building on the corner as I turned to head back into town. It read, English teachers wanted. A colorful logo emblazoned at the top of the flyer and the organization was printed in bright blue and orange letters. Samos Volunteers. A brief description about teaching the refugees on the island followed. I balked at the idea of a volunteer role. Hadn't I lost enough money already on this Homeric odyssey away from home? My mind carried on walking to the bus station, but my feet conspired against it and turned to carry me through the entryway. The foyer looked like a well-worn university residence hall. Battered sofas with sunken springs lined two walls of an alcove, a wobbly bookshelf bearing a sparse collection of tattered volumes between them. An industrial metal great staircase rose to an unseen second floor where I heard the sounds of furniture being dragged across squeaky laminate flooring. A desk bell on a reception counter to my right, and I tapped the plunger on top. Hello? I called. A young woman with wavy blonde hair poked her head out from the top of the stairs. A homemade floral print face mask dangled from one ear. Oh, hello there, she called down with a distinctive Irish lilt to her greeting. She struggled with her face mask, the free end knotted in a lock of hair. We're closed for now, but the center will be reopening tomorrow, she informed me. I saw your advertisement for volunteer English teachers. I was wondering if you could give me more information. She bounded down the stairs in seemingly two giant leaps. When can you start? Oh, well, I stammered, taken aback by the sudden enthusiasm. I was just hoping to find out more about the position. You see, I'm an English teacher over in Iraqi Kurdistan, and I've been stuck on the island here since lockdown in March. I've been trying to get back home, but now that it's summer break, it seems 
pointless for me to go back until the autumn term begins. At any rate, the flights are still grounded and the borders are closed. I cast my eyes around the room again. It seemed a rather dingy place for to offer as a community center, even for refugees. I've done some work with refugees in the past, and I wonder if you were aware of any Kurdish refugees in the camp? She stood staring at me, mouth agape, for what seemed like a full minute. Then, suddenly, a torrent of words flooded the space between us. Oh my god, I can't believe you just walked in today. The information came at warp speed. The center was open six days a week, but only under essential, essential special coronavirus precautions. There were four teaching levels on offer, 12 students in a class, and yes, there were many Kurdish-speaking refugees on the island, though mostly from Syria. And how many classes would I be able to teach in a week? A half hour later, contact information had been exchanged, and a week later, I found myself back by the sagging bookshelf for my orientation. Mustafa introduced himself to me while I waited. The tight black ringlets hugging his scalp and chestnut complexion belied his origins in the Levant, though where precisely I couldn't guess. His eyes, the grey-blue of a stormy Aegean sea, reminded me of that famous photo of an Afghani refugee girl that graced the cover of so many magazines, and his piercing gaze suggested that he had weathered more than his strapping young frame would have you believe. Where are you from? I asked. He smiled broadly, rolling up his sleeve to reveal a bracelet emblazoned with the colors of his national flag. Palestine, he beamed. Are you one of the community volunteers? I queried, asking if he was one of the refugees recruited to assist in running of the center. Yeah, he said then moving in closer, almost intimate, like disclosing a secret. I've been waiting two years here. I want to go. The storm clouds swirled in his eyes, and I saw a quiet plea like distant thunder and a heat-lightning flash of hope. It's a pleasure to meet you, I smiled. Will I see you here tomorrow? His mood shifted back to casual and friendly, when my shift is over, I go home, he replied, almost non sequitur, as if his previously disclosed desire to go was about leaving a work shift behind, rather than leaving behind the life of a refugee. But I knew better than to assume. Life in limbo eradicates any foregone conclusions about tomorrow's plans. Six weeks passed, and as summer rolled on, I hung on the news cycle, wondering if I'd be able to go home. And every day, I hung out with refugees who knew they never could. After a day of teaching, I wandered down to the bus station cafe, which amounted to little more than a collection of petite round tables littering the pavement under an awning. But the harbor view was stunning. The owner, an older woman with a cheery smile and animated eyes, asked me where I was from. Kansas City, in the U.S., I replied, though I haven't lived there for the better part of 20 years, I added. You're the first tourist I've seen here this summer, she said, quarantine-weary lines etched deep in the creases of her smile. When did you arrive? March. So I'm more local than tourist now, I laughed. 
She smiled and laughed with me. It was nearly a rehearsed routine now, describing my coronavirus captivity story. Most people couldn't believe it. They were either unwilling to see why I didn't just go home to either America or the UK, or incredulous that I would want to return to Iraq. She shook her head at the whole story, but digested it without much hesitation. She'd clearly heard some incredible tales from the many refugees that frequented her stretch of sidewalk outside the cafe, hopping on the Wi-Fi networks to send messages to loved ones in their home countries. The local residents seemed fairly divided on the issue of hosting so many refugees in the tent city overshadowing their harbor town, but she appeared to fall on the more generous side of the divide. I noticed that even the sidewalk menu had been scribbled in Arabic, the dusty chalk letters a small signal of welcome in a town that might otherwise have preferred to turn their back on helping the foreigners in their midst. That young man is from Iraq. She waved a hand to a lone man seated at the farthest table. I recognized in her smile a distinction between helping the individuals she knows and the growing weariness of long-term generosity in this crisis. Baghdad, I think. My smile bridged the space between us immediately as I called across, Anta Iraqi? Are you Iraqi? He paused, almost apprehensively, then nodded, yes. I live in Sulaymaniyah. I used the full Arabic name for the city, by which it is officially known outside the Kurdistan region. Then, hoping for a bit of kinship, asked, Kurdistanit? Do you speak Kurdish? He laughed. La, I'm a Baghdadi. No, I'm from Baghdad. He eyed me with caution still, not sure what to make of this white boy who claimed to live in his home nation from which he had fled, shouting Kurdish greetings at him from across the pavement in a Greek streetside cafe. Granted, to anyone other than myself, it was odd. No matter, though. I whipped out my phone, crossed the bridge built by my earlier smile, and opened an album of photos from Kurdistan. See? I pointed. Here's Suli. And Erbil, have you been before? Oh, and this one is from Kalar. That's much closer to Baghdad. He grinned, and one of his friends walked up to join him while I was mid-scroll. He excitedly jabbered away in Arabic, presumably explaining my story to the newcomer. I was still scrolling, and they both laughed when they saw a photo of a famous waterfall depicted on the back of the Iraqi 5,000 dinar note. In the photo, I was attempting to line up the image on the bill with the real landmark in the background, with only a moderate degree of success. Are you a soldier? His friend wondered, a question I've been so commonly asked I could practically put it on my resume. No, I'm an English teacher, I answered, but I've been stuck here since coronavirus started, trying to get back to Iraq. The hiss of air brakes signaled the arrival of the bus, and I signaled to the waitress for the bill. But I've been here so long, I almost can't imagine going back. Even though I want to go back... It doesn't seem safe yet to leave. I smiled, giving my new friend an affirming squeeze on the shoulder. The bill came, and I pressed a two-euro coin into the cafe owner's hand to pay for my drink. I hoisted my bag on my shoulders and shook hands with my Iraqi neighbors. 
I'll see you around, I called, heading for the open bus door. But I never did. It's entirely unjust to compare my pastoral lockdown with those suffering in the broken refugee system, though, without a doubt, I acquired new levels of empathy for their plight. A year after my first visit to that refugee camp with my students, and six months after my lockdown in Greece, I found myself in my, back in my Kurdistan home. When I first set foot inside those grounds, I had such little awareness on the scale and complexity of the refugee crisis. Since then, I have learned that an estimated 1% of the world's population, over 75 million people, is displaced due to conflict. Many set out across the treacherous waves of the seas with little more than a hope and a prayer for a better life, one filled with opportunity and promise. Instead, they find themselves upended by the waves of bureaucracy and political rhetoric. Many of the refugees I've come in contact with this past year have been caught in the asylum-seeking system for upwards of six years. My own refugee experience on Samos lasted less than six months. In those first few weeks on Samos, throwing rocks into the sea and wondering if I was a Jonah or the whale, it never occurred to me that I might be both. Jonah, charged with a message to send to a people in need of hearing it, refused to deliver. It took the divinely comic intervention of a whale, not unlike 52 hertz, perhaps, to propel Jonah to fulfill his duty. Like Jonah, I felt spit out on the shores of a foreign land, almost resentful of the charge placed upon me. But now that I've learned so much more and seen behind the veil of our global refugee crisis, I am the whale bellowing out a cry to be heard on behalf of the foreigner in our midst. And if I should find you in the waters with me, beware. I am learning to open my mouth wide, to speak the truth I know. And I am only just beginning to learn the power of my voice.